Well, this text, James chapter 2, has a rich history in the church. And one of the people who dealt with this most famously and encountered opposition most famously is a man named Martin Luther. I teach church history, by the way, at California Baptist. And so he's been on my mind lately. As we approach the year 2017, we're observing at Cal Baptist, and you'll see this throughout the world, the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg, Germany, where he began protesting some teachings of the Catholic Church that led to the Reformation that we have all been blessed by to this present day. Now, Luther, you may know, was a faithful Catholic. He was raised as a Catholic. He was baptized as a Catholic. And he even became a Catholic priest. And and, in saying this, we're saying that Luther was not a nominal Catholic. He gave himself to be a monk, and he believed the church's teachings about salvation. Now, what Luther believed was this, as the Catholic Church taught, that we are saved by grace plus merit, faith plus works, in Christ and the church. We know this, Luther thought as a Catholic, because the Bible teaches this and the church confirms it. Therefore, when it comes to salvation, Luther would say, we should give glory to God, but also his church, because it's through the church that we can actually know God and receive saving grace. Now, a number of events happened in Luther's life, and I don't have time to go through it, but Luther began to question that whole system of salvation. Are we really saved that way? Because he tried to earn God's favor. He tried to merit God's attention. He combined works with his faith. He believed in Christ and the church, but Luther's eyes were open. And it's from Luther we get these solas that I mentioned earlier, grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, by saying alone... Luther was taking off every additive that the Catholic Church had added to the salvation package. We're not saved, Luther said, by God's grace plus our merit. We're not saved, Luther said, by our faith plus our works. We're not saved by faith in Christ and the church. He took those additives off and he put the word alone there. We're saved by grace alone. We can't merit God's favor. We're not good enough. We're saved by faith alone. Our works don't justify us before God. And we're saved by Christ alone. We can have access to God through Christ even apart from the church. Now, the big challenge in Luther's day was this. What makes you so sure? You're just a lowly priest, former monk, And you're going against 1,500 years of church history. Luther's answer is very simple. I believe this because I believe in Scripture alone. The church, he says, is added to the Bible. And by adding to the Bible, you have man-made teachings that take us away from the pure gospel, which is God's favor to us in his son, Jesus Christ. And so Luther's comment there, Scripture alone confirms that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, pointed him in that fifth direction, that fifth sola. We should give thanks to God alone for our salvation. We can't take credit for it. The church can't take credit for it. Only God in his mercy is to be praised for our salvation. Now, 
when Luther upset the Catholic Church, they didn't go quietly into the night. And the Catholic Church would say to Luther as they did, what about James chapter 2? You're saying that we are saved by faith alone. And they could point Luther to James chapter 2, verse 24. Look at it. James says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Well, how does Luther, who's banking everything on Scripture, respond to that? Ah, there goes James again, Luther says. James gets the gospel wrong sometimes. That's Luther's response. James is a right, strawy epistle. He mangles the gospel and thereby contradicts the Apostle Paul. Now, let me say this just for the record. You don't know me, but you're wondering, what's this guy all about? Luther was right about salvation. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He was wrong about James. Because the Bible does not contradict itself. James does not give us one message of salvation that contradicts another message of salvation from the Apostle Paul. In fact, if you want to know where Luther was coming from, it was exactly that perspective. Luther leaned so heavily on Paul that he couldn't hear what James was saying rightly. If you don't mind, I just don't want to assume that we all know this. I understand I'm speaking to a broad audience here. But if you don't mind, just keep your finger there in James chapter 2. Turn back for a moment to Romans chapter 4. And, and you'll get a sense of why people think there's a contradiction between James and Paul when it comes to the gospel message. And yes, I'm going somewhere with this. It will help clarify, I think, if we familiarize ourselves with Paul's message, it will help clarify what James is actually talking about. So Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, down to verse 8, you'll see Paul making a very direct statement about salvation using two key examples from the Old Testament to prove his point. He writes in Romans chapter 4, verse 1, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Quoting in verse 7, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now, very briefly, what you see Paul doing here is saying, we're not justified by works. We're justified by faith. And he points this out talking about Abraham. Abraham did great things for God. But what was it that justified Abraham before God? What made Abraham a child of God? It wasn't his works, Paul writes. It was instead, verse 3, Abraham believed God. And God counted that as being his righteousness. Abraham was a child of God, not by works, but by faith. And Luther would say, by faith alone. And the same thing is true there with David. David knew about forgiveness. He knew about being a sinner. But what was that took him from being a sinner to being a child of God? It was God's mercy 
God's grace. David did not earn God's favor. He received it freely. So when you compare Romans 4 with James 2, you are correct if you think maybe, maybe there's a contradiction here. You're incorrect if you conclude there remains a contradiction there. So that's my task this morning, to find out what is James really saying? What is James really teaching about the role of faith and works in our salvation? And if I could just sum it up this way so you can sort of keep up with where I'm going, it's basically this. James's message in chapter 2, verse 14 to 26 is not that we're saved by faith or works. It's not that we're saved by faith plus works. What James is teaching in this passage is we are saved by a faith that works. It's not faith or works, faith plus works, but if our faith is a genuine faith, it's a faith that works. It's a faith that demonstrates itself as being a living, active faith that does not support the Catholic Church's teaching, even to this day, that our faith plus our works save us. What James is dealing with here is that if you say you have faith, show me. And then I'll believe that your faith is genuine faith. So, so two broad ways that I want to sort of flesh this out from this particular passage is very simple. First of all, I want us to begin by comparing James's question in verse 14 with his conclusion in verse 26. We're going to compare his question in verse 14 with his conclusion in verse 26. And secondly, we're going to consider the examples that he gives us in light of the challenge that he offers us. So James will give us four examples, four examples of faith. And all of that should be understood within the context of a challenge that he is issuing us. All right, let's go back to number one. Compare James's question in verse 14 with his conclusion in verse 26. It's, it's like when you start reading a mystery novel and you begin in the introduction, everything gets set up. If you're like me, you just go to the end real quick, make sure you know who did it. And if you know who did it, you won't miss all the details in between. Why wait when you can already know it was the butler? So we're looking at introduction and conclusion. What is James asking? And then also, what is he concluding? We'll get to the details later. Here's what he's asking in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now, right there, church, I want you to know that James is asking a completely different question than Paul. He's dealing with an entirely different situation altogether. What Paul is dealing with in Romans and also Galatians are people who think, I am right with God because my works are sufficient to demonstrate that I'm a good person. I observe the law. I keep God's commandments. Therefore, why wouldn't he have mercy upon me? James is not writing to that audience. He's not dealing with that question. He's asking a different question. What good is it, my brothers, he asks, if someone says he has faith but has nothing to show for it, doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? So James is not asking his faith sufficient. He's asking his faith real. Is it true, genuine faith this person has when they claim, I've got faith? 
Drop down, if you will, now to the conclusion, verse 26. He, he tells us, for, concluding, as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So, so James is concluding, if we had to separate the two completely, if we had to say faith and works are not tied together whatsoever, his conclusion in verse 26 is, it's like a dead body. It's there, but it's not there. The, the, the body resembles a person, but the person has nothing to offer. The, the, the body was a living human being, no more. We speak of the body as opposed to calling the person by name. So as the body apart from the spirit is dead, just a carcass, so also faith apart from works is dead. So again, church, James is asking a different question than Paul. He's dealing with a different situation altogether. Can a person actually say, I have faith and be right with God, even though, as he says in verse 14, this faith has no evidence of being born again, no works that actually are visible to the human eye? And, and so James is ultimately answering no. So, so in short, what James is dealing with here is a spurious conversion. He, he's dealing with people who believe that faith is merely a profession, something you say, something you talk about. But James does not presuppose we're dealing with the real thing. If a person says he has faith and nothing in his life changes, James says that faith can't save you. So it's not faith or works. It's not faith plus works. It's a faith that works. A faith that gives evidence that God is at work in a person's life because they believe. And that's the first part, comparing the question with the conclusion. Now we know what he's talking about. We can sort of work through the details. Our second big point here is to consider the examples that James gives us in light of the challenge he offers us. In other words, James gives us four different examples of faith in action or without action. And all these examples must be understood within the same challenge he's offering us, and the challenge is given to us there in verse 18. So first of all, the examples. In verse 15, he mentions a brother or sister who is poorly clothed and lacking in food. That's example number one. Example number two are the demons, verse 19 talks about the devil and demons also having an, a sense of faith, if you will. Not a real faith, but giving the appearance of it, if you will. A third example begins in verse 21 with Abraham, the father of the Hebrew people. And then finally, the fourth example, verse 25, is Rahab, the prostitute. Now, those are four examples. A brother or sister in need, demons who profess to believe something, Abraham, who did mighty things for God, and Rahab, that we know did at least one thing for God. All of these examples must be understood in the context of the challenge that James is offering. So these are not isolated examples. They're all tied together in the argument. What kind of faith really saves us? What, kind of, well, what does faith really look like? And that's James's challenge here in verse 18. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. 
Show me your faith apart from your works, James says, and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, again, James is not saying faith is unimportant. He's asking a question, what does it look like? What does saving faith look like? So, so James's challenge is very simple. It's not hard. Two words, show me. You say you have faith, show me. This is what he's saying in verse 18. This is the challenge. I will show you my faith by my works. Do you want to know if my faith is genuine? Watch my life. It's not that my works are making me acceptable before God, but my works are proving my faith is genuine. It's real. So, so James' challenge is this. If you say you have faith, show me. Then I'll believe that's a real conversion. It's really the thing God is calling us to do. Let's just apply that challenge to those four examples. Verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Now, understand when James talks about brothers and sisters there in verse 15, he's not talking about some stranger on the side of the interstate holding a sign saying, we'll work for food. You know, you sometimes see that and your heart goes out to people and you give money to them, and then sometimes you think, boy, that's nice cardboard. Where'd they get the marker from? And haven't I seen that person before? And you have to sort of discern, is this a good investment or not, and trying to do something good for somebody I don't even know. I remember distinctly giving a woman that I doubted her story, but I thought she's just really in need. I gave her some money. And this was at a gas station, and I heard the story and had questions. But here, God will use it. Let it go. Two weeks later, gas station across the street, same lady, same story. And I called her on, and I said, you told me that same story last week or two weeks ago. And her face was just, the color left her face. She turned away and walked off. James is not saying if you're really a Christian, you're going to give to everybody who appears to be in need. He's not saying that. He says if a brother or sister, a fellow Christian, poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and again, James is writing, as you know, as you know in the context of the dispersion. Jews are, being, are chasing the Christians out. Christians are being uh, harassed. And so if you see a fellow Christian, a brother or sister who is in need, and you say, good luck with that. James says, I don't believe that's real faith. Because if you, if you truly are born again, you love the people of God. Your heart immediately goes out to brothers and sisters in need, especially the household of faith, the Bible says. So when James is talking about faith and does it save us, he's not saying, can faith make us right before God? He's saying, can this kind of faith make us right before God? And the challenge is, well, show me. If you really are born again, you're going to help that brother and sister. That faith works. It lives out in the real world. But if you say, hey, be warm, well fed, see you later, hope it goes well, James says you didn't show me. That's the first example. The second example you see in verse 19 where he talks about the demons believing. Now, this is interesting because as an educator at a Christian school, I bear in mind this passage, even the demons believe, 
And also chapter 3, verse 1, not many of you should become teachers. You make the connection. And I often tell students this in my classes. You very well could pass my class. I teach church history, Baptist history, Old Testament, theology, history of theology, and so forth. You very well could pass my class, all of our other classes. You could graduate with a 4.0 GPA and still go to hell. Because just because you can memorize facts and reproduce them on paper and, and, and you know, outthink other students in your class, that doesn't mean you're right with God. Now, of course, this goes without saying, but that's why I need to say it, of course theology is important. What we believe about God in the Bible is very important. Not minimizing that. But notice what James says. You say you have faith. I say, show me. And if you can't show me, but yet you can talk about the things of God, all the books you've read and all the doctrines you try to solve and the arguments you get into and you try to prove that you're right, what James is saying is you should just know the devil is a better theologian than you. He actually knows more about God than you do. The devil has actually seen God's glory before he was cast out of heaven. The devil has seen the Son of God. He tempted him in the desert. The, the devil has seen the Son of God rise from the dead. He believes in the resurrection. And all the demons say amen. They believe it too. But here's the difference. The devil and his demons don't submit to God. They, they believe it intellectually, but they fight against it. They push against it. They don't receive the grace of God, the mercy of God. They don't understand what it means to be forgiven. All they do is oppose God. And so it's not enough to say, I have faith and your life remains unchanged because James says, well, you're just like the devil. You believe as much as he does, but he believes more. And by not repenting, by not truly being converted, you're no better off than he is. And yet there is one difference here. If you notice there in verse 19, James says, well, the demons do believe. It doesn't save them because it's not real faith. They do believe, but they shudder. I like the King James better. They tremble. At least they have sense enough to know their days are numbered. They cannot oppose God forever. So, so again, the example that James gives us here has to be considered in the context of his challenge. You say you have faith. Show me. Well, I have faith. I believe the Bible. I believe that Jesus is God's son. But does that faith actually work itself out into your life that you're a different person? So that you actually submit to God's commandments lovingly, willingly, quickly. That's the second example. He goes with Abraham as our third example. And he gives us more detail. Again, following the same line of argumentation in verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And here, church, he goes from the negative to the positive. He's given us two examples of people whose faith has no work at all attached to it. There is no sign or evidence of truly being born again. And then he goes from Abraham and Rahab to talk about people whose faith was real. And we know it was real because we could see it in action. So from the negative to the positive, verse 21, 
Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Now, again, that's problematic. Because we know that Abraham was considered righteous before God even before Isaac was born. So Genesis 15 is when Abraham is really questioning God's faithfulness. Here I am, an old Middle Eastern man, wandering around the desert trying to have a baby, not getting any younger. How about Eliezer? How about Ishmael? Have you seen Hagar lately? Come on, give me something to hope in here. And God says, no, it's going to be through you and through Sarah, the promise I've made will come true. The Bible says Abraham believed God. And God's response to that was righteousness, faith in action right there. But remember, church, James is asking a different question. How do we know that Abraham believed? Show me. Okay. As opposed to simply wandering in the Middle East trying to have a baby... When that baby is born, Isaac, and grows up to be a young lad, verse 21 says, Abraham was willing to sacrifice him before God. And if you want to talk about faith, that is one of the highlights of the Old Testament. Abraham had waited so long for this promise. He had trusted God, as the Bible says, he and Sarai both, hoping against hope. It's just like expecting the angels to come back and win it all this year. You just It's just not likely to happen. But Abraham hoped against hope. And when that promise was finally fulfilled, Abraham said, in obedience to God, I love God more than my son. I'm going to sacrifice him at God's command because I'm not going to hold on to the promises if it makes me lose hold of God. So it's a very important moment in Abraham's life. If you said to Abraham... Are you really a believer? (laughs) Let me tell you a story he would say about me and Isaac. Willing to lay it all out there before him. So if James were to say, well, is Abraham truly a believer? Is his faith really genuine? Yeah, because you could see it. It's a faith that works. It demonstrates itself in the daily activities of life. Just for you parents, you don't have to prove your love to God that way anymore. Ever again. But if your faith is real, when God calls you to do hard things, you say, yes, Lord. As hard as it is to trust you, Lord, my answer is yes. Now, what was the question? Whatever you say, Lord, the answer is yes. That's real faith. So Abraham is an example of positive faith, real faith that's backed up by his life. The works will demonstrate that. Then Rahab, verse 25. In the same way, he says, Rahab, the prostitute, was justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Just one verse given to her, but Rahab is celebrated in the Bible as a woman of tremendous faith. And why is that so? It's because unlike Abraham, Rahab did not have a full, clear revelation of God. God had spoken to Abraham. God had guided Abraham. Rahab had simply heard stories about Israelites escaping from Egypt. And she had simply heard about Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, conquering other people along the way, delivering them through the Red Sea. And she believed based on what she had heard. Now, her 
work, if you will, her claim to fame, verse 25, is that she received messengers, the spies who came out to see if the land of Canaan was what God had described it as and if they could actually come in and conquer as they were told to do. Now, what's interesting here is this is part of James's larger argument. Do you have faith? Okay, show me. Well, Rahab could have been setting these men up. Oh, I've heard great things about your God, she says. How he led you through the Red Sea, how you defeated the kings of Sion and Og. And yet, she could have been simply setting them up. Happens all the time. But we know that Rahab had genuine faith because she hid God's people to save their lives, which led to them infiltrating the city of Jericho, after which God's people marched right in. Well, they marched around first. They marched right in and conquered, as they were told to do. So did, did Rahab have faith? Yes. Well, why does James say she's justified by works? Because the works prove her faith was real. Now, that's the argument that James is making. James is not saying you can be saved by faith or works. We know that because throughout this passage, if you just go back and read it this afternoon, you'll see that faith, 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 faith comes up all the time. Abraham had faith. Rahab had faith. It's not works that save us. If it were, then Rahab did one thing. What's the one thing I must do then? Give me that one chance, Lord, and I'll be saved. It's not saying that. It's not faith or works. It's not faith plus works. Church, it's a faith that works. If I say I have faith, it will show itself in my life. I'm a different person because I'm a Christian. I'm not the same person I was before I came to faith in Christ. How do you know your faith is real? Because your life is different. It's changed. That's why, by the way, James is offering so many commands that he's offering in this text. As you work your way through with Pastor Bill in weeks to come, you're going to see there are a lot of commandments here. But, but how does James describe all these commandments he's giving us? Look back, as you'll see in verse 12. He's talking about we Christians are those who will act and speak as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Do you want to know if your faith is real? You see God's law as liberty. That's, it's a seemingly contradictory phrase, and James is just fond of this. But law usually means restriction. You can't do this. Thou shalt not. Restriction. And liberty usually means freedom. I can finally be me. I don't care what anybody else thinks. And, and the way James sums up the commandments of God is very simple. If you truly are a Christian, you see God's commandments as setting you free. They're not confining. They're not burdensome. You do it out of love because your life is different. Your affections are reoriented. Your ambitions have submitted themselves to the glory of God. So James is arguing against spurious faith. And he's saying, if you say you have faith and your life isn't any different, I don't believe it. Show me. If you don't mind, let me just sort of wrap up um, 
this this whole discussion. I want to get three practical points of application, things that we can all take home and, and sort of ask, how can we apply this in our lives, right? How do we take a text like this from being academic and say, now, what, what does it mean really to me, all right? The first thing I see in this text that really has to be dealt with, I think, first of all, is that James is supposing, this is underscoring his whole text here, James is acknowledging, I shouldn't say supposing, that's more hypothetical. James acknowledges it is quite possible to think you're a Christian when you're not. And I have to admit, church, this is frightening because this passage is a warning text. It serves notice that people will claim to have faith, but sadly they don't have the real thing. And so we must acknowledge this, that it's very possible to think of ourselves as Christians, but in reality we could actually be deceived, thinking we're Christians when in reality we're not. Jesus mentions this. I'll turn there. You don't have to. But Jesus mentions this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7. Uh, He says it this way. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you, Jesus said. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, church, that's a sobering reminder that we humans are fallible about a lot of things. Our our knowledge base is fallible. Our emotional base is fallible. We can feel bad when we have no reason to feel bad. We can be confident when we have no reason to be confident. And even so, we can be pretty certain we're Christians, but in reality, we're not. So, So let's take James's admonition to heart here, church. Let's understand that if we say we are Christians... Our lives have to be different. If we call ourselves followers of Christ, we actually have to follow Christ and not the world. And it may be that you have been a member of the church for a long time thinking this this is what pleases God. You may have given to this church for many years and say, this proves I'm a Christian. But if you're living in unrepentant sin... If your ambitions are being dictated by the world and not by the word, I want to encourage you, examine yourself and see if you are in the faith. You can deceive yourself into thinking you're a Christian when you're not. And I want to say something particularly to younger people. By younger, I mean under 46. (laughs) Just saying. But I know this in in teaching 18 to 22-year-olds and, you know, some things just a little bit above or beyond that. I know there's a generational shift that's already taken place in my lifetime. I didn't think I would grow old as fast as I have, but it happens. You sort of look back and say, the world has changed without me. Things aren't the same. And, And so I'm speaking directly to high school, junior high, middle school, even early going into college. You're being told today that you can be right with God without repenting of sin. Because we've redefined sin. 
Same-sex marriage is legal. Smoking marijuana is legal. All sorts of drugs and behaviors that were once frowned upon by society have now been embraced. And all that proves, people will say, is that moral codes are just a behavioral construct, a social construct. We create our own good and evil. I just want you to hear me out. You cannot come to Christ and live in what the Bible calls sin. I'm not saying you have to get better before you can ask for mercy. I'm saying you can't have mercy until you lay it all down before him and call it what it is, sin. So I want to encourage you. If you thought you could be a Christian and not be persecuted by the world, you don't have the real thing. You you need to repent of sin. Find out what the Bible calls sin. Side with the Bible, not with the world. And by repent, I mean lay down your opposition to God and say, yes, this is who I am, and I'm ashamed of it. This is who I am, and I can't break it. And by laying it down before God, you're saying, my faith is in Christ. I need Him to save me. Him, only He alone can save me, because I can't. That applies to everybody in this room. You call yourself a Christian and nobody around you knows it because your life is no different than theirs, I encourage you, examine yourself to see if you really are in the faith because James assumes we can deceive ourselves. Second point, related to the first. Even though we can deceive ourselves about our salvation, none of us can deceive God. So we might be fooled by somebody else's profession of faith. We might be fooled by our own profession of faith. God will not be fooled. The Bible says that God will not be mocked. So, so don't deceive yourself into thinking that I can just live this life and everybody can sing my praises and then we'll sort it all out at the end. God knows right now where you stand before him. He knows if you are a true child of God or if you are simply a professing hypocrite. And at this point, I want to sort of direct the conversation to some of you who may not be Christians at all because of the hypocrites you've met in the Christian faith and in this particular church or any church you belong to in the past. There's a lot of people who say, you know, I'm not a Christian because I've met too many of them. They're hypocrites. All that you've done at this point is agree with what James has said. Yeah. James would say, you're right. You're just being observant. There are plenty of people who say, I have faith, but their lives don't back it up. Therefore, hypocrites are to be expected in the world, in the church, on the Internet, on TV, the radio, you name it. My question to you, if you're not a Christian, and you say this is because people say they're Christians, but they're not, I want to say to you, Consider the real thing. Don't hide behind hypocrites and say, now, that's why I'm not a Christian. Turn your eyes toward the real thing. That's why I think it's important that James gives us positive examples here. Look at Abraham. If you want to know what does a real believer look like, James says, look at Abraham. Here is a guy who was very wealthy, who could have lived his life in obscurity, but hearing the voice of God, he moved by faith. By faith, Abraham walked with God. 
And he gave up his ambition. He gave up his personal desires to follow a promise that God had made to him. That's the real thing. Consider Rahab. You really can't get more polar opposite than Abraham and Rahab. Did you notice this in in our passage, verse 23? Abraham is called the friend of God. Rahab, verse 25, is called the prostitute. That's, That's the Bible's way of saying that God saves both kinds of people. God saves the... The guy who has it all together, he also saves the woman who's made a mess of her life. Abraham, the friend of God, Rahab, the prostitute, but notice what she does with her life when she hears the word of God, what God has done. She believes it, and it transforms her life. In fact, if you read Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, the Bible sings her praises. Here's what faith really looks like. So, so if you're not a Christian, you just simply come to church because it's expected of you. Maybe your parents have brought you here. Maybe it's just one of the things that you haven't quite broken the habit of yet. And you look around here and you say, yeah, I know about him. I know about her. I know these people aren't real. I'm asking you this morning, look at the real thing. Because the Bible has plenty of examples of it. And I want to tell you this. If you're going to look at the real thing, you might as well look at the real thing. Look to Jesus Christ. It's because of Jesus we don't have to earn our favor or salvation before God because he did it every day of his life. The Bible says on not one, not two, but three occasions that Jesus was like us in every way but without sin. He lived a life of perfect obedience to God. If you really want to see what does it mean to trust the Lord, look at the life of Jesus If you want to see what does it mean to walk with the Lord, look at the life of Jesus. Let that be your standard. And my prayer, of course, is that God would use his life, his example, to show you that this is what Jesus came for, to die for your sins. The last point is this, and it's going to take a different turn the first two points because the first two points are very very much in keeping with James's warning here. James is warning us. He wants us to know these things, that we can deceive ourselves, but we cannot deceive God. That's his first two points that I'm sharing with you. But I find this passage, church, a third practical point that I think we should pay attention to, and it's this, is that this text is not just a warning, but it's also a great comfort to God's people. And I say it's a comfort because when you look at this text, it's telling you, yes, you can fool yourself, but you can't fool God. Therefore, look at the text and make sure that this is not you that James is talking to. Make sure that this is not the person you see there reflected back at yourself. So so by telling us what false belief is, James is also saying, I want you to have the real thing. God wants you to be saved. God wants you to know that you belong to him. And frankly, church, that's one of the many things I have against the teaching of a Catholic church. I'm not saying go bash Catholics. But if you simply look at what does does Catholicism teach about salvation, you'll find something very problematic right here. Catholicism says justification, our right standing before God, is a process. They say it begins at baptism and ends at glorification. When we die, go to purgatory, atone for our sins there too, and then make it finally to heaven. 
in, in that scheme of things, church, you can never know that you're right with God because you never know when you've done enough. And you're pretty certain you haven't. That's why purgatory exists in Catholic theology. You, you just haven't been good enough. Therefore, you have to do some extra work, some overtime. One of Martin Luther's greatest insights in the Bible was this. We are justified right now. We are justified the moment we believe the gospel. That's when God counts to us as righteousness. We are, Luther said, simultaneously sinners and justified. So, so we keep sinning in our life, and yet we don't have to doubt our salvation. Why? Because God sees Christ when he sees us. Jesus died in our place. Our sins have been atoned for. We are forgiven. Let me tell you, I'm just, this is in closing. This is how Luther got there. Luther was a priest, but he was also a teacher. He taught the Old Testament, had a degree in it. And in teaching the book of Psalms, he came across the cry of dereliction, Psalm 22. Jesus' cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, Luther had his own troubles because he was trying to earn God's favor. He believed salvation was by grace plus merit, faith plus works. And he wanted, he said this, he wanted a God that would love him. That's what he wanted, a God that would love him. But Luther believed this more than that. He believed God hated him because he was a sinner. And Luther, in his guilt-ridden self, said, I don't blame God for hating me. So when Luther is studying Psalm 22 to teach to his students... He asked himself a very important question. Why did Jesus take these words upon his lips when he died on the cross? Why would Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Luther says, he should forsake me. I'm a sinner, but Jesus is the sinless son of God. And here's what Luther understood, and this is what the Bible actually teaches. Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because on the cross, a transaction was taking place. God made he who knew no sin, Jesus, to become sin for us. So that we could become the righteousness of God. Even though Jesus had obeyed God every moment of his life, God forsook him because he poured the sins of the world on his son on the cross so that... We who believe in his son by faith would be forgiven and have the righteousness of God imputed to us. Do you know what that means? It means that if your faith is real, if you truly trust the Lord Jesus Christ, you are God's child forever. You cannot lose that standing before God. Yes, you're going to sin. Listen, we sin Christians every day. We sin on Christmas Day. We sin on Easter too. It grieves us. We hate it. We repent from it. We have strength to fight against it. But even in our worst days, we belong to God. Why? Because his son died for us. And so James is talking about people who say they have faith, their life doesn't back it up. I'm talking to those of you now who really do have faith but feel weak in it right now. Every doctor and mother knows that you apply different ointment to a different injury. 
So if you have faith, but you're weak in it, I'm not asking you this morning to trust your works. That's for the spurious confessor. If you have faith, but you feel weak in it, I tell you this morning, look to Jesus Christ. You look to Jesus Christ. You put everything you have in his merit, in his work, and you will find he is sufficient for your salvation. Grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so grateful for the gospel, how desperately we need it, how far short we would fall if we trusted in our works. But you have given us the way of salvation. Trust in the Son, Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. So, Father, this morning I pray for the groups of people we've addressed, for those who think they're a Christian but are not, would you awaken in their heart a sense of repentance, help them to be convicted by your law and to come to faith in Christ. For those who've been put off by the Christians they've seen, I pray that you'll also grant them repentance. They would see the life of Jesus Christ and say there is none like it in the world but their faith in him. And again, Father, for the weak Christian, for the person who just wonders, have I done enough, would you direct their eyes to Jesus and say that he has done it all? That it is finished when Jesus Christ paid the price for our sins? And in doing so, Lord, comfort your church. Grant strength and hope and joy to your people that we would serve you out of gladness, not out of guilt. That we would serve you with love, not out of fear. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.